Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Our class is excited about our current major study into the book of Daniel. This is the 10th lesson in this series, and we are just beginning the third chapter of Daniel. Here we see the building of the huge statue of Nebuchadnezzar, made of pure gold and standing in the middle of a flat plain. It could be seen for many, many miles around, and the people were to bow down before it. This lesson begins the story of how Daniel and his friends did not bow down, and as we move ahead in future lessons, we find the punishment for not bowing down. Class teacher Doug Brady is presenting this book of Daniel as an example of what is happening in our own times here in America. We need to carefully think through this material. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center. Over 100 people are members of this class, and we invite you to join us if you are in the area. Well, I see that Doug has gone to the podium, ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible Class and open our Bibles to the book of Daniel. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. We're going to study the first 12 verses of Daniel chapter 3. Now, I know that's going to disappoint some people are going to say, well, that means we're not getting into the good stuff today. Well, we will. You just have to be patient. But let's, let's review just a little bit as to where we've been, because we spent a great deal of time in chapter 2. We need to think back, because we're going to see some of the principles of chapter 1 in action in this chapter. Question, does God ever honor spiritual compromise? No, not under any circumstances. And he does provide unearthly protection to those who are unwilling to compromise on spiritual and biblical issues. Are we not in a society that's going to try everything they can do to get you to compromise? Yes. Amen. We're living in the same kind of world that Daniel was living in. So how does Daniel live there? The same way we should live there. The same way Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah should live there. And so today we're going to start that. Now, we need to recognize something. When you are faced with compromise, there's competing forces on both sides. Let me show you. External pressure is one that they want external pressure is going to be put on you to compromise, just like Nebuchadnezzar is going to put it on Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Also, though, we have internal cravings that will also try and get us to compromise. On the other side, though, is internal principle. How do you get internal principles? You have to build them. If they're not being built into your life, you won't have them. And when the time to compromise comes, you will be at a loss. 
And we get those internal principles from God's word. And so we need to see that. Now, we aren't told specifically how Daniel's parents built God's word into his life, but it's evident that they did. Let me ask you a question, though, in that regard. Is it ever too late to start building those internal principles into our lives? One of the things, one of the last things my mother and father taught me was, you're never too old to serve God. Never too old to serve God. And I've come to see that. Now, in chapter 2, God made a very powerful statement to Nebuchadnezzar. He, it was, this statement was used to introduce himself to Nebuchadnezzar. It was used to demonstrate his power and indicate to Nebuchadnezzar his control of the world and his foreknowledge. But as powerful as that statement was, it doesn't compare to the statement he's fixing to make in chapter 3. And uh, it's going to have a very strong effect on uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But we also need to look at things a little bit today behind the curtain, so to speak. Does God have a plan for Nebuchadnezzar? Does God have a plan for Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Does Satan have a plan for Nebuchadnezzar? And does Satan have a plan for Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? He does. Now, we talked a little bit about that in more of a, a, a comedic setting last time. But I want you to see that in the book of Daniel, we're given insight to see what it is, if you think through, that Satan has planned for these three young men and Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. I want you to see that for a second. First, Satan wants to turn what God has given to Nebuchadnezzar in this specific dream and this idol into an idol and a snare. He does that regularly. He did that with the bronze serpent. He did that with the golden ephod of Gideon. He's going to try and do it here. And some people may say he was pretty successful. Second, he's going to try and separate Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from Daniel. He wants them separated. Third, he's going to try his very best to remove Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the playing field. Get rid of them. Eliminate them. So that Daniel is going to have to stand on his own. And finally, he's going to take on Daniel in his plan without support for his friends. Now, let's ask this question. Did Satan really put it in Nebuchadnezzar's mind to take this dream of the statue and turn it into an idol. I'm convinced he did, and I'm convinced he's going to do it again. When? If you're turning to the last book in your, in your Bible, in Revelation chapter 13, 14 through 15, there's a fellow by the name of the false prophet who's talking, and he says this, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth, that is the false prophet, because of the signs which was which it was given to the false prophet to perform in the presence of the Antichrist or the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and had come to life. Now, let me stop there. What is going to be is a fake resurrection from the dead. Satan's Messiah is going to rise from the dead or appear to. It's going to be a lie. 
But that's what it's going to be appeared to. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. So the image of the beast would even speak or cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Ah, that sounds like Daniel 3, doesn't it? Does Satan change his game plan? You know why he doesn't? Because it works. He is a liar, and it works. And it's coming, and we need to realize that. Now, what is something that happens along with this image of the beast being set up? Does anybody else know what else is going to happen at that, right at that time? Well, yeah, the, the, beast, the, uh, the image is going to be set up in the temple. But he's going to require something from everybody in the world. A mark. Where's that mark going to be? Either the right hand or the forehand. Now, some people think, oh, yeah, they're going to put a tattoo or a bar code. Or... How about just a little injection? And they've got nanotechnology now that can send that code to your right hand or to your forehead or anywhere else you want. If they could just figure a way to get everybody in the world uh, inoculated, then they'd be able to do it, right? I'm sure they can't come up with a plan. We just need to make sure they don't. But anyway. People are going to be so proud of that that they're going to tattoo it. You think so? Yeah, they very well may. I think tattoos prepared everybody for that. Well, I never thought... As many, a high percentage of young ladies as in our day would get tattoos. Now, you know, I have a son who has a tattoo, so, but it's on his back and it says Yahweh Sabaoth. But, all right, Julie's saying, Doug, you're going way too far. We're talking about the nanotechnology that's going to be invisible. It's going to be... It will not be visible to the next eye, but when you go in a store... When you put it under the reader, they'll be able to read it. Um... So, well, let's go on, because I want to see what, what's happening here. First question has to be, we just finished chapter 2. He had the dream of the image. Now he's going to build him an image of all gold. How long between these two chapters? How long has it been? Well, some people say uh, it's really just uh, two to three years. The problem is there's no clear chronological marker at the start of chapter 3. Now, there's a guy who I think highly of. His name is Clarence Larkin. He wrote Dispensational Truths. Some of you have had access to that book. I'd get that book if I was you. He says 23 years. M.S. Mills, another guy who I read and study from time to time on these kind of things, he believes the interval was 17 years. And it was 17 years. He believes there's support for that in the Septuagint. Dr. John Walford, though, late president of Dallas Theological, he concludes that it's eight years. And as I've looked at what these three different men have said and these others who say two to three years, I've decided to go with Walford. The reason for that is this. Here's his explanation. They were two years into the reign of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two, two years into his reign. On the 10th year of his reign... I think it was 595, 594 from December, and I'm giving it to it in, in Julian calendar, not Babylonian or Hebrew calendar, but between December of 595 to January of 594, there was a coup attempt to dethrone Nebuchadnezzar, and he was very successful at 
putting down that coup. But what is one of the main things that you want if you're the king or the emperor after a coup? To eliminate those who were unloyal and to make sure everyone else publicly states their loyalty to you. And that's what's happening here in chapter 3. It's not only a religious act, it's also a political act. Because this is Nebuchadnezzar's statue from his dream, I believe. Some people say it's a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. It could be. could be Nebo. I don't think that. I think it's more of the dream. So as we go along here, one of the other questions, besides how long it took, is that's always asked, well, where the heck is Daniel? Why isn't he here? Now, if Daniel wasn't there... And part of Satan's plan was to separate Daniel from those other three men. Could you say that Satan's plan was successful? Answer, yes, it was. You see, God uses Satan. Was it Satan's plan to kill Jesus Christ? Yes, and Satan was successful. He just didn't realize the big mistake he was making. Here... This is part of God's plan. Satan's plan is to get those three guys alone so that he can take them out. God's plan is to let him get those three guys alone so that they can show that they're not going to compromise and make themselves even stronger because of what is going to happen. God uses Satan when he wants to. And we need to understand that. You know, some people say, man, this is a big contest between Jesus and Satan. No, it's not. He's God. Satan's not. Not a contest. Jesus wins every time. Satan never wins. He may appear to win. He may think he won, but he really lost. And we need to understand that. Now, there's all kinds of explanations why Daniel's not there. Some scholars want to say, well, he was closeted in a meeting with members of the king's cabinet and working on some legislative military plan. Others say, well, sometimes he would get sick, and he may have been too ill to attend a public ceremony. Maybe so. Others simply say that, you know, it was assumed that the king's vizier, that is, prime minister, uh, was not required to make public demonstrations of his loyalty by worshiping the image, and some other things like that. It's true that they want to say some that none of the wise men who were Daniel had been made chief of were included in this public ceremony. That's wrong. They were, and I'm going to show you that in just a minute. He could have been absent from Babylon at this time, that is, on government business or some other part of the kingdom. And in fact, Jewish scholars that, and Jewish traditions say that's exactly the reason he wasn't there. I don't think it really matters very much. But what is important to see is this. Had this story been an invention of some guy writing during the time of the Maccabees, you know, the second century B.C., which is what higher biblical critics want to say about Daniel because they can't accept all the supernatural events and the prophetical pronouncements that are so accurate. They want to say what he's doing is he's writing those prophecies, you know, it would be like, I'm going to prophesy that our president, uh, Mr. Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy, is going to die in Dallas in 1963. Well, we all know that. 
You know, it'd be like me trying to create some book like that and then say, well, this was in 1927 when this was written. It's the same concept that they're trying to say. But here, if this had been written by some guy during the time of the Maccabees, the chief hero wouldn't be admitted. He would have him there. You see, reality transcends fiction. And the very incompleteness of this account testifies to its fidelity. And we need to see and come to understand that. Now, I want you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to start in this chapter. But before we do, let's, let's offer a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you bless the study of the first part of this chapter this morning. I pray that we'll come to understand how in control you are of every single detail in Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's life and in our life. Help us to see that you're still in control. You can still do things that are miraculous when you choose to and when it's according to your plan. And if it's not according to your plan, then you won't do it. But help us to understand that no matter what, we can rely on you. And so I pray, Father, as we move through this passage, you will help us to see what it is that you want us to do. Amen. Daniel chapter 3. I can't hardly wait to get in here, you can tell. Uh, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and the width was 6 cubits. How, how long is a cubit? About 18 inches. It's a little less than 18 inches, but... For government work, we'll say 18 inches here. And he set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Now, let's talk about this plain for just a second, the plain of Dura. Some scholars say it's uh, to the northwest of Babylon. Others believe it's located southeast or southwest. But I think it's important. And here I'm going to go. Uh, this is one indication of the plain of Jura. You understand or notice how flat it is. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar wanted. He wanted this image to be seen. This is maybe one of the leading places because they say you could put it up on that, on that location. Uh, another site that's, that's to the south, uh, west, is this site. And there is, though, a river called the River Jura, which runs into the Euphrates. And most people think it's if you look at this site where the Dura River runs into the Euphrates, archaeologists have found a mound. And of course, that's what archaeologists always dig in a mound. And in this mound, they found brick. And they found a brick platform that measured 45 feet by 45 feet by 20 feet high. Amazing that that would just be perfect for a statue like this. Now, I think we have to look again though at this, because the fact that the specific name of this location was given implies an intimate knowledge of Babylonian geography from the 6th century. Someone writing over in uh, Israel, in, in Judah, around uh, 167 B.C., they're not going to know about the plain of Duran like that. Not going to know about it all. And yet, the writer of this has intimate knowledge of the geographical locations in and around there. So look at the statue a second. And I want you to see this statue. Uh, the Aramaic word here, it's Salem. Salem. You can see that in your notes. Now, if you were to look in your Bible, 
there's a Hebrew word that's almost exact match for this Aramaic word salem. And if you look in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, you will see that Hebrew word in use. And in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of he created him, male and female, he created them. What is that word conveying in, in Genesis 1.27? The man looked like who? God. Here, he's creating the same kind of image. So this image is going to look like someone or something. What's it going to look like? What about the word made? There in that first, first sentence, he says, the king made. What is that word? Is that, that means to fashion. It would not be the same word as created here, which is the, the Hebrew word to make from nothing. So who did he make from nothing, though? He made the man. The woman he fashioned or created from a part of the man's side. That's, yes, I, I'm well aware of that. And that's how this same word in the Aramaic where he made that ties into that word. So he's fashioned it. So Nebuchadnezzar is supplying the gold, and it's being fashioned to look like the image of either him or the dream, or maybe both. Maybe it's the image of the dream with Nebuchadnezzar's face on it. Now, I'm speculating there, but the word says this is made to appear as if someone who's doing the making, you see what I'm saying? And I think that's important to see. Now, let's go on here. Now, some people, scholars who are, again, these higher biblical critics, they want to say, well, the dimensions are wrong. Remember, this is 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. That's the dimensions of an obelisk, they say, a 10 to 1 type ratio. And so you wouldn't have, number one, a statue like that. You notice how this depiction is, and, and it goes up and up at the top, really. So, yes, you can have an image, and you can have it of gold, and it looks like that. And so uh, I think what they're saying is an error. And now, was this image solid gold or not? I used to think it was solid gold. <coughs> I've changed my opinion now. Now, I changed my opinion because I found a passage in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 19, where it says, As for the idol, which is what this is, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. So what they did, they built probably a wooden or some kind of other metallic framework and then covered it with gold. That's why the furnace was there to be able to cast this gold or, or make this gold so that it can be put onto this image. And so I don't believe that it was completely solid. Also, if it was completely solid, the efforts to get it upright, I'm not sure they had the engineering to do that. If it's on a wooden carcass and then gold-plated, much easier. And so that is the reasons why, why I do that. Now, all of the empire's leaders gathered at the capital city. And there was this huge progression. 
out to the plain of Jura for this spectacular event. There was a platform erected for the king to have his throne. There was a large orchestra there to provide the musical accompaniment. And then we see what's going to happen in chapter, I mean, in verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar king, the king, sent word to the assembled satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the king of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, I want you to stop there just a second and think through this. Is this empire large? Yes. It was basically the whole civilized world at the time. And they had influences up in the Grecian sub-peninsula, all over Turkey, everywhere around in there, going, going east a good ways. Now, to bring all those people together is quite an undertaking. How long does it take to travel in those days, those kind of distances? You know, it's not like everybody can fly in for the weekend. Uh, this, is, this is different from that. This may take weeks to get there. But you notice through this progression, all civil servants, all peoples in position of leadership are required to be there. Why? Because he wants loyalty. Not going to put up with another coup. And he's requiring everyone to be there. And that would be quite an undertaking. Now, Nebuchadnezzar believes that he can root out any disloyalty by what he's about to do. That was part of his plan. What he's going to end up doing is rooting out the most loyal people in the empire to him. And the motive for this plan is going to heighten the debate as to whether the statute, who it looks like. So let's look to this call of loyalty here for a second. Chapter 3, verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a flaze of a furnace of blazing fire. Now, just for shortage, I, I'm going to say from now on the leaders, when they have that long list, and I'm going to say the musical instruments when they have this long list, but they look something like this, and you can see the various instruments. However, these instruments are going to be fodder or ammunition for another attack by the higher biblical critics. And they say, we've got you now. You see, if Daniel was writing it, he would be writing it at the time of Babylon. If the real author was writing it, he would be writing it around 167 B.C. Who was in control of the world in 167 B.C.? The Greeks. The Greeks were. And in particular, the division of the Greeks, Antiochus, Epiphanes, etc. Three of those instruments are Greek words. Aha! That's because it was written in the second century. Three of those instruments. And you just got to stop lying to people, Doug, when you're telling them that this was written by that guy Daniel in the sixth century B.C. It's right up there. Well, they call it something different, and I think maybe a zither or something like that. 
No, Zither. Not Eric Von Zipper. Zither. I, I don't know. That's an Amalekite concept. We're going to go on here. Now, although the uh, higher biblical critics, they thought they had us, it, the good thing is that archaeologists keep digging. And there is now a large body of evidence that Greeks were taken captive and enslaved by both Babylonians and Persians in the 7th century B.C. And some of the times they would put them in their musical groups because they played instruments that people in Babylon and Persia didn't play. So if you have an instrument that's being used that you didn't know anything about, whose name are you going to use? The guy who's playing it. What is that you're playing? Greek musicians and instruments are also mentioned in Assyrian inscriptions, the larger kingdom before Babylon. Syrian inscriptions written long before the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And maybe the best thing here, well, maybe not the best. There's clear evidence in these archaeological digs that Greek products and trading sites uh, in cities were located throughout Western Asia in the 6th century B.C. There's trade, commerce going on. But what I think is, is the best uh, response and what I love the most is, do you remember something called the Septuagint or the 70? That was the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament and in here, the Aramaic portion of Daniel Old Testament into Greek by 70 scholars in Alexandria, Egypt. It was the last good thing that came out of Alexandria, Egypt, some would say. But when they got to these words, they replaced them. Why? Because those words were so old, they were obsolete. They weren't used anymore. And this was around 250 to 200 B.C. So if someone was writing about these musical instruments in 167 B.C., he wouldn't have used those words. He'd use the words written in the Septuagint, the more modern words. You know, when you're dealing with obsolete words, it makes it difficult to understand God's word. Those of you who read King James understand that. But we're going to go on here about this. When the proclamation was made to worship this image, it has to do with prostrating yourself. Now, could these three men do that and be obedient to God? Well, let's look at Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol or a likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I... Yahweh am your Elohim, and I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on from the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Pretty strong language, wouldn't you say? Could it be that maybe after a while that changed that concept? No. There's a fifth book in the, in the Pentateuch, the five, first five books that Moses wrote, Deuteronomy. You know what the name Deuteronomy starts, uh, speaks of? The second law. Well, what does it say in Deuteronomy? Well, let's look and see. I am Yahweh your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol 
or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the water below, and you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your Elohim, am a jealous God. Is it rather clear the conundrum? It's basically this. It's a earthly checkmate. What's a checkmate? If you can move eight different places on the board in chess with your king, every place you would move, you'll get taken. Or if you stay right where you are, you'll be taken. That's checkmate. You can't win. This is an earthly checkmate. What can they do? Can they run? No, they can't run. Can they stay right where they are? No. If they fall down in worship, they've lost. If they stand up, they're going to be killed. Checkmate. But is there ever a checkmate that God can't handle? But checkmate's impossible to get out of. Not for God. And we come to see. So let's look at the moment of decision in verse 7. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sounds of the musical instruments, and the people and nations and men of every language fell down to worship the image Nebuchadnezzar had set up, uh oh, someone's not going to. Well, now, I want to see could it be, do I have a picture of our old friend up there? Yes. Uh, Don, I want you to imagine for a second that you're Hananiah. You're standing there, and you've just heard the king's pronouncement. And you know the scripture because your parents taught it to you. Okay? Then someone starts whispering in your ear. And he says something like this. Hananiah, the three of you are obviously sincere and quite dedicated young men. Don, I know you are. We need more people like you. And that's just the reason why you have to listen to reason in this matter, Don. Because if you don't listen and, and instead persist in this obstinate disobedience, you're going to be killed. And your beneficial influence on Babylon will be over. You've been put in a spot here by God. He didn't put you there for no reason. Consider first that your disobedience is already being entirely misunderstood. You think that you're standing for the identity of the one true God, but what you're doing is actually being construed as political rebellion and defiance to the king's order, Don. You're not going to be executed for religious purposes, but for civil disobedience. So what good does perishing in this rebellious state do? The proper course for you, Don, is to bow down, live and extend your godly influence in other ways. So what do you say, Don? Aha. Well, let's just say then that Satan can't seem to get through to Hananiah. So he goes over to Mishael. Mishael, you need to understand that Nebuchadnezzar is actually on your side. He's going to give you a second chance. He did not need to give you a hearing. When he did, he didn't need to give you another chance. He's done these things only because he's already well disposed towards you and he likes you, Mishael. He does not want to have to execute you, so you've got to help him out. I think that if you would stand at a distance from the statue and tip your heads forward slightly, you don't wouldn't need to prostrate yourself to the ground. Nebuchadnezzar would be pleased by that, and he would respect you all the more. 
And he would realize it was a difficult thing for you to do, but that you did it for his sake. And it takes men of courage to compromise like that. You begin to see Satan does these kind of things, and he says these kind of things to you. And it's going to happen over and over and over. Because to Azariah, he said, Azariah, you and I both know that all that thing is is gold. It's not animate. It's not representative of anything but the king's dream. The dream that God gave him. Now that dream was given to him by the one true God and therefore in honor of God's dream and in homage to the one true God and the dream he gave to the king, prostrate yourself before the image and in that way honor God's dream. Certainly God would be pleased with you for showing your support to him and what he was doing in Nebuchadnezzar's life. You know, all of these things, they sound kind of good at the start or at the surface level, but they're all poison. Satan tries to do that. So, let's go to verse 8. For this reason, at that, certain, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. I'm going to stop right there. Who are Chaldeans? What? Just Babylonians. They are the soothsayers. They are part of the king's cabinet, remember? Who was Daniel put over? And three more Jews over their province. Because I think they're extremely anti-Semitic. And you're going to see by the way they say this, that they are. And they see now it's our chance. But the people, the scholars want to say, well, none of the king's advisors from his cabinet were there present. That's not true. The Chaldeans were there. And if they're there, those other guys are there too. So you can't say they're not there. And they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the musical instruments is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews. They didn't say certain men, certain people, certain Jews, whom you appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you, and they don't serve your gods or worship the golden image when you have set up. You see, no one else but the Chaldeans did this. They wanted rid of these guys, and they were anti-Semitic. You know, we lived in a country that for a long time was one of the least anti-Semitic countries in the world. We could always be counted on to... Support Israel. Then in 2008, something happened. I'm going to go ahead and get myself in trouble. Someone who was of the Islamic persuasion was elected president. And things changed. Now, there was a respite in 2016, but we're back again. Weren't some of these Chaldeans some of the very people that uh, Daniel saved from because he couldn't yeah, interpret sure. the dream? You're exactly right. You see how they're repaying them? They'd be dead if it wasn't for Daniel. You're exactly right. They are. They're jealous. All right. I didn't hear it quite right, but the direction. So I put some things down in your notes. Was this religious fervor that these guys were expressing? No. Was it really loyalty to the king? No. Remember, they'd been manipulating him. Jealousy, 
more than likely, racial prejudice, certainly. How did Nebuchadnezzar not see these guys himself? You see, with everybody bowing down, you can't help but see those guys. He didn't say anything. He had to wait till these Chaldeans. And, you know, they, they come up to him, and what do they say? You said, no bowing, you're dying. You got to do something, king. You see, that's the way they are acting. Now, there's probably close to 300,000 people at this event. Most scholars have come in agreement of that. Now these three men have to make this decision not to compromise. So what will they do? They've made that decision not to compromise. So what will they Are there any promises of God that they could look to? There are? How about this one, Don? Found in Psalm 31, starting verse 14. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. Many times, my times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. The core in that promise is my times are in your hand. Are we in God's hand? He said, no one can take you out. No one can take you out of my hand. Now, David wrote that. If David's times were in his hand, Steve, are your times in his hand? My times, Kathy's times, they're all in his hand. He's got control. No one can kill me till God's ready for me to die. That's just all there is to it. And the same thing is true. Look in Psalm 37. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. But you know what? The promise to me, that's the coolest one of all, that I am certain that these three young men knew because it was written by the prophet that was so revered by the people in Daniel's time. It's the prophet Isaiah. Look what he wrote. But now, thus says Yahweh, your creator, O Jacob, or O Israel, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Can you remember the time when Israel had to pass through the waters? Not only the Red Sea, but also the Jordan River. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let's talk about this just a second. What are these men going to have to choose to do? What they're going to have to choose is either to compromise and bow down or participate in civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. One of the reasons I think this book is so timely for us is I believe that there's not going to be any time at all the way things are moving. We're going to have to make choices. Do we participate in civil disobedience or not? Let's talk about that. Does God honor civil disobedience when it's done properly? Well, let's look at that. Would God, would God honor in the course of your civil disobedience lying? All right. Let's start this way. When did civil government start? The Noahic Covenant. You can see it's, it's underpinnings in Genesis 9, 6, where it says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. 
For in the image of God, he made man. Does that say anything about capital punishment? Well, what about when they say only God should make that decision, who, who should die or not? Well, God's already made it. He, he sets the parameters right here. Look at his view on government. In Romans 13, 1 through 7, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, when, when Paul's writing this, who's the emperor of Rome? Nero. Uh, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And he goes on in stating that. Now... Give Caesar what's Caesar. Well, and we do give Caesar's what Caesar's, but what about when the government requires you to either not do something that God is telling you to do or to do something, as in here, that God has told you not to do? Then the Christian, the believer, is required to participate in civil disobedience. So what I did is I went through the Scriptures to try and find examples of believers who participated in civil disobedience. The first one I found was in Exodus, chapter 1, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was Shiphrah, and the other was Puah, and he said, When you are helping Hebrew women give birth, and you see, see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. And if it is a daughter, then, you shall li- then she shall live. So what is he telling her to do? Kill him if it's a boy. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them and let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can get there. Is that true? No, that's not true. They're telling something that's not true. That's a lie. How did God respond to that? Well, let's look and see. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. He did in that situation, and we're going to talk about the rules for that. But let me give you another example. Joshua Chapter 2, starting in verse 2. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab. What was Rahab's job? Saying, how do you know that? Uh, Yeah, I think we ought to move on. Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out, and I do not know where the men went, but pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax, which she had laid on the roof. She tell the truth to the king? Did she survive the battle of Jericho? Did she marry a godly man in Israel? Did she become a part of Jesus Christ's lineage and genealogy? She did. I just wanted to clarify what you were meaning by that. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 3. Then Ahab called Obadiah, 
who was over the household. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Did Ahab fear the Lord greatly? No. He worshiped Baal. Feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with, with bread and water. Civil disobedience. In Daniel 3 and in Daniel 6, we're going to see examples again. Now you come to the New Testament. Acts 4, 18 through 21. And when they had summoned them, they, the Sanhedrin, them, Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Now, can they do that and be obedient to God? No, they can't obey this command and still be obedient to God. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what happened. Again, in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 27, and when they brought them, they stood before the council, and the high priest questioned him, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Oh, the appropriate party for the blood. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And that's the principle of civil disobedience. Now, if we are put in this position, the same situation where the world demands that we either, one, refuse to do what God's told us to do, or two, we must do what God has told us not to do, how do we decide what rules do we follow? Well, I'm going to give you six different rules that I think we need to use and we need to learn because you are going to have to make this decision. Don't think, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. It's coming. May have already come. And this is that um, in our time, the French underground did this for the Jewish people when the Nazis were persecuting them. They had to put themselves at risk. And hide them and even lie about them. Now... Let's talk about these rules. Number one, Christians should resist the government that commands or compels evil and should work nonviolently within the laws of the land to change a government that permits evil. We should be doing that. Yes, Gary? Of the Second Amendment, it's to protect citizens of the United States from the government. But now, we'll get to that in just a second. Well, hold on. Civil disobedience is permitted, number two, when the government's laws or commands are in direct violation of God's laws and commands. Now, it's got to be direct laws, direct violation of. Not, well, you know, I really don't like that leader. He's an evil man, not going to do anything he says. No, that doesn't qualify. Number three, if a Christian disobeys an evil government, Unless he can flee from the government, he should accept the government's punishment for his actions. Are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah going to accept the punishment? Is Daniel going to accept the punishment? Did Peter accept the punishment? Did Jesus accept the punishment? Number four of these rules. Christians are certainly permitted to work to install new government leaders within the laws which have been established in their government. Number five. As an act of civil disobedience is to transpiring, maintain respect for civil authorities, even while you're disobeying them. 
it is, that is an important part of Christian civil disobedience. You're going to see Daniel uh, in chapter 6, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in chapter 3. They remain extremely respectful to the king. They don't, in your face, challenge, well, see what, what's going to happen to you. No, they don't do any of that. Lastly, Christians are commanded to pray for their leaders and for God to intervene in his time to change any ungodly path they are pursuing. Now, wait a second. Does that mean I have to pray for him and her and her and him? Well, let's see. First Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. All right. I got a final thought here for you to understand. We live in a country in which the primary virtue from its very inception has always been truth. Truth is the most important thing. Truth is what measures a man. What's the first story you learned about George Washington? He chopped down a cherry tree and his dad said, who did it? I cannot tell a lie. It was me. Remember that? If you talk to Abraham Lincoln, you talk to James Madison, you talk to these other leaders who helped found our truth was the key virtue, the virtue that oversaw every other virtue. Is the man a truth teller? Does she tell us the truth? Our country has now changed. Truth is not that important a virtue in most of our people in our nation. The highest virtue now is tolerance. It starts with a T, but it's not anything close to truth, meaning acceptance as equal of all ideas, disciplines, cultures, religions, religious practices, thoughts, and ideologies. Everybody is right, and in effect, there no longer is any truth except for you. You know, it's interesting. I don't, I don't usually quote this man, but he was brilliant. He was Alexander the Great's tutor. He helped him, God used him to help him create the Koine Greek language. And it's interesting what he said. His name was Aristotle. He was a Greek, and he opined that tolerance and apathy are the last virtues in a dying society. If that's right, what is he saying about our country? Rife with tolerance and apathy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we could come together and meet. I thank you for preserving this book for us so we can see how to live in a pagan society. Help us to be like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Help us to make our decisions now way ahead of time. And when the time comes when the world tries to get us to compromise, we can stand with unashamed boldness, with an unhindered faith, and with an unhindered persistence so that we can say we will not compromise. Do to us what you may. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.